The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 19. This message was given during the evening service on November 13, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. For those here in the auditorium or listening by way remotely, please answer this question on a note sheet or in your mind, not out loud. The question is this, how do you know when you're depressed? Don't answer out loud. See if you can come up with a biblical idea in your mind. How would you know when you're depressed? None of these, one answer fits all. Don't use this one. I just know. (laughs) No, that's not good. Okay, that's the one we could have used this morning. How do you know you're saved? I just know. (laughs) No, you don't want to do that. How do you know when you're depressed? Emotions can play tricks on us. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, we're looking at a righteous emotion. It's that word distress in verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while it is necessary, since necessary is what the if means. You have been grieved by various trials. The suffering that they're facing isn't because they got a flat tire, The horse attached to their chariot ran away. Suffering here is because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We can negate suffering simply by not letting anyone know that we're believers, never confronting sin, never evangelizing. We can minimize much suffering, but then we face the discipline of the Lord for that because suffering is one of the eight great wills of God, and it's listed right here in verse 6. It is necessary that you suffer. That's God's will. But to help us with this difficulty of suffering in this third series in 1 Peter 1, we're learning the marks of suffering. And in your note sheet above the dotted line, or between the two sets of dotted lines, I've given you the first three marks. Christian suffering is temporary, represented by the phrase in verse 6, for a little while. Mark number two, Christian suffering is necessary, represented by the phrase, if necessary, and in parentheses next to that, you could write, the Greek is literally since. It's the if of surety, since necessary. If necessary, and it is. That's how it would be translated. And we're currently in Mark number three, Christian suffering is distressing. We've defined distress, and basically it's grief and sorrow. Underneath Mark number three, And I've analyzed good distress versus bad distress. We examine joy and good distress as partners, and they are because they're both required of us in verse 6 to greatly rejoice while distressed. So they're not in opposition to each other. They do stand together. But this raises confusion for some Christians. The difficulty of determining the difference between the powerful emotion of grief over trials versus anxiety and fear, letter D, and versus depression, letter E. Anxiety and fear is a sense that God has abandoned me in my moment of need, and that's sin. That is not what that word distress refers to. What Peter's talking about in verse 6 is simply this, that it hurts to suffer. Suffering would not be suffering if it didn't hurt. Sometimes it hurts physically, financially, 
can cost you your life, as we read about in the martyrs' updates tonight. It can cost a person their job. It hurts to suffer. And at the very least, suffering for Christ causes emotional distress. Anxiety and fear are sins. Distress is not. I started last Sunday night to define the issue of distress versus depression. And I hope that you gave a biblical answer. And you could have just looked at your cheat sheet because it's listed right there. How do you know when you're distressed? Last sentence under letter E, above the dotted line, you have a sense of hopelessness. Hopelessness drives prayerlessness, as I mentioned last Sunday night. You could very well say to yourself, what good does it do? This is hopeless. It doesn't do any good to pray. That's all depression. That's lack of faith. That's sin. So I'm analyzing so that we can understand that we are to accept grievous distress. We're not to accept depression. Number two in your note sheet then tonight, let's further analyze good distress with joy versus depression. This is number two under letter E and below the dotted line. Joy with distress is sadness over trials while knowing that God loves us. Joy with distress, good distress, is sadness over trials while knowing that God loves us. Even when the distress is caused by our own sin, the godly believer knows that God still cares. And we should have grief over our sin. There's three steps to rectifying your sin. You sin, number one. You have sadness over it, number two. You have guilt, number three, which leads to repentance. You sin, then you feel distress or grief over it. Then you repent because of your guilt, and then you're restored. If you don't have grief over your sin, it's pointless to say, God, forgive me. If we're robotic, and there are times when we are, and we think, well, I know I'm supposed to repent, so I guess I will. God, forgive me. But you don't have any feeling of grief. And then, of course, if you don't have grief over your sin, then you would not have guilt. The grief and guilt is first and foremost not because the sin has done me wrong, but because it's done God wrong. So even when we have distress because of our own sin, that distress is good. Sadness over suffering is good. Sadness over our own sin is good. But even then, it should drive us to repent when it's sadness over our own sin. Uh, we're in First Peter, so go to chapter 5. Hopefully I'll get my chapter numbers right tonight. That frustrates me to no end when I do that. It's against the very core of my fiber, my being, to have you searching for a passage that I'm misstating towards you and not know it. This isn't so easy. I'm looking at the Bible, I'm looking at my notes, I've got thoughts running ahead, and sometimes I just miss the chapter number and I apologize again. It's part of my humanness. First Peter 5. <clears throat> We're to cast our anxiety in verse 7. Definitely. <clears throat> That's what we're to do with anxiety. And we looked at this under anxiety before. Um, the word for casting would then apply to any sin that we have. This is a general word for getting rid of something that's bad. Uh, casting all your anxiety upon him, you have to get rid of it. 
and it's epipo. And the idea here is to throw onto somebody else, to throw something onto somebody else. You're casting, you're throwing it by faith. In your mind, you're saying, take this. So we cast our depression, we cast our anxiety. And the foundation of that is he cares for us. And so when we're depressed or filled with anxiety, as verse 7 is referring to, we lose a sense that God cares. We think he's abandoned us. It's hopeless. This is why we don't pray. The foundational reason why we don't pray is we don't believe in prayer. There is no other reason for it. I, I've had people, as I told you last Sunday night, who've argued this with me ad infinitum over the years. There is no argument against this. We don't do certain things because we don't believe in them. That's foundational. Why are some Christians, as I said this morning, not fearful of hell? They don't believe in hell. And that's a, that is alarming. How, how could a believer not believe in hell? Well, I believe in hell. Well, doesn't it frighten you when you think about it? Nah. See, that's not, that's not belief, right? Uh, if I was to say to you, well, you're supposed to obey the Lord. Well, I'm not obeying the Lord. But I believe in obedience. I believe in obedience, but I'm not obeying. That's, that's crazy. Lack of prayer means I don't believe in prayer because I don't trust the Lord. I don't think he cares for us. Casting is a prayer word there in verse 7 then. We cast verbally and in our minds to the Lord, asking him to take this. We do it by faith. It's a major way that we get rid of fear, anxiety, and depression. If I don't pray, I don't believe in it. Like I said this morning, 2 Corinthians 10 talks about stronghold issues, and there are Christians that say, no, that's simply not right. I absolutely believe in prayer. I just don't pray a lot. I trust God to take care of all things. I don't need to pray. Nothing needs to be said to that line of reasoning, does it? Go to the Old Testament, Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verses 30 to 32. Psalm 89, 30 to 32. Referring to verse 20, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him, verse 20. Then verse 30, if his sons forsake my law, and do not walk in my judgments. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and with iniquity, and their iniquity with stripes. But, verse 33, I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. Do you know what those four verses are telling us because they're monumental. Even as his children, if we violate his law willfully, he still loves us in verse 33. That's that number two point. Sadness over trials while knowing that God loves us. Grieving over my sin yet knowing God still loves me. I will not break off my loving kindness, verse 33. Loving kindness is one of the words for mercy, as we'll see again next Sunday in the morning sermon, in verse 33. God never deals falsely with us. He is faithful. When we accuse him in depression, you've abandoned me, it's hopeless, that means God is false. He is unfaithful. 
So one and number two, the great sin of depression is we accuse God of being unfaithful, of lying to us. We don't trust politicians because they lie to us. It's as simple as that. I don't know what everyone else in the country is doing, but Sue and I mute every political ad that ever comes on television. We don't want to hear a word out of their mouths. I don't care whether they're Republican or Democrat. They're all liars. I've had my fill of all of them. Salvation of this country is not the Republican Party. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and neither party wants anything to do with them. They're all liars. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't trust them. To listen to them depresses me. If I'm depressed as a Christian, I don't want to hear you, God. I don't trust you, God. You're unfaithful, unreliable, and you break your word. We have to look at our sin for what it is. Depression is not victimization. It is not, oh, I love you, but I'm so hopeless. You know, God, I still love you. No, I do not know that, God will say to us. Verse 34, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips, for I've sworn in my holiness I will not lie to David. Even when we sin, God doesn't abandon us. He chastises us. This is who the God of the Bible is. This is our Savior and Lord. This is why we should never be depressed, because our circumstances are directed by God. The person who's depressed, their God is too small. Okay? They lack faith in the Lord. They don't trust him to direct their steps. He is unreliable. We view God like we view ourselves and others. We talk and tell someone to call us, they don't call us. We text someone, they don't respond. Well, now you know why I don't. Because of this uh, satanic phone I have here. People let us down. They say one thing mean another. They gossip, they slander. They misjudge us falsely. We don't trust people. The heart of man is desperately wicked. We should never attribute these fallen, sinful characteristics to our Lord. He cannot, in verse 34, he will not alter his word. As bad as life gets, God still controls it. Does David still have a problem with God, though? Yes. Yes, he does. Verse 46. Verse 46 is like kind of like not listening to a word I've just said for the last five minutes. Okay? That's what verse 46 is of Psalm 89. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like... What did God just say? Does a loving God hide himself? Verse 48, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Verse 49, where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord? What did God just say back in verse 33? She swore to David in your faithfulness. We're bent towards thinking wrong of God. That's the, that's the foundation of hopelessness. You ever have an opportunity to counsel someone who's hopeless as far as a true believer? Please do not, as I said two Sundays back, two sermons back, don't pat them on the head and say, oh, I'm so sorry. This is great sin when we're depressed. It's an attacking of the very character of God. He saved us to give us joy. He brought us abundant life. Are the circumstances of your life and mine 
so terrible that they are an absolute convicting foundational truth that God has abandoned us? Have the bad things of your life really convinced you and I that God does not keep his word? Is that what they've done? This is terrible. Number three. So depression, then, is the abandonment of God. This is ironic. While believing that God has abandoned the depressed one. Isn't that ironic? Where are you, God? I'm depressed. When I believe that you've abandoned me, I become the one who abandons you. What's the point? Why pray? Why talk to you? I abandon you because you've abandoned me. Wow. Depression is the abandonment of God. It is not feeling down. That's distress. When you're suffering, there's nothing wrong with feeling down. Of course, we'd have to define what feeling down is. I, I guess I don't really know what that means. When I feel down, I'm discouraged and depressed. My emotions of grief are not the same for me as an emotion of feeling down. So I don't know how you define feeling down, but for me, that's depression. Down for me is moving away from God who's up. Number four, depression is believing there's no way out. That one is trapped and God doesn't care. That's what depression is. Believing there's no way out. That one is trapped and God doesn't care. 2 Corinthians 4 defines depression. It is the defining verse. 2 Corinthians 4.8 is the defining verse on depression. If you're depressed, you go to 2 Corinthians 4.8 and you figure out what's really going on in your mind. 2 Corinthians 4.8. Depression is believing there's no way out and that one is trapped and doesn't care. That's depression. If you ever utter the words, because of your circumstances, I feel trapped, God. You're depressed. That's sin. A lot of Christians feel this way, and it alters their judgments. It alters their decision-making. Because I feel trapped, number one, God is not doing anything. Number two, I have to take care of things and get out of the trap. Very dangerous. Leading up to verse 8 is verse 7. But we have the treasure in earth, and this treasure in earth and vessels, treasure of Christ, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. It's four terms. I've taught you this before. Afflicted, crushed, perplexed, despairing. Afflicted goes with the first and third words go together. Second and four words go together. Afflicted, perplexed, not crushed, not despairing. Two couplets. Afflicted goes, afflicted is the first word, goes with the third one, perplexed. Second word, not crushed, goes with the fourth word, not despairing. We are all afflicted. Paul is saying, I'm afflicted and perplexed with his suffering. That's okay. What's affliction? It's phlebo. It's a narrowing. It's a pressure. A feeling that one is confined and trapped. It is a feeling of narrowing or entrapment. This is what suffering does to us. This is what afflicted means. 
And it's a continuous, I am, we are continuously afflicted, a, a sense of being narrowed, pressured. A phlebometer is an old name for a blood pressure machine. And that's because the word phlebo, which is part of the Latin and the Greek, in phlebometer is, refers to a narrowing. When your arteries narrow, the blood pressure goes up. Lisinopril, which I take, uh, is a loosening of the walls of the arteries and veins. And it makes them more pliable, and that's allowing the blood to flow easier through, and thus the pressure drops. That's what lisinopril does. It relieves the pressure. So he's saying, I have a sense of narrowing. Yes, we do feel like at times we're trapped, but that's not a period. Not perplexed. A feeling of, uh, uh, excuse me, not crushed. Afflicted and perplexed. He's also perplexed. He's at a loss. He doesn't understand the suffering. We are afflicted. We're perplexed. I don't understand it. Even Paul, this is suffering. Suffering is a sense of, I do feel somewhat trapped, and I'm confused, but not crushed. Stenacharil, the word for crushed, means actually not trapped, to actually be made cornered and narrowed. He feels with affliction and suffering that he's trapped, but he's not actually trapped. He doesn't believe that he is. That's the difference. Back to your notes. Depression is believing there's no way out and one is trapped. It's a belief that I am trapped. That's depression. Paul is really drawing a very fine line here that we need to draw. My suffering is a narrowing. I feel narrowed. I feel trapped. But I'm not trapped. I'm afflicted, but I'm not crushed. He believes that by faith. He's confused with perplexing, but he's not despairing. And there's the word for, there's the word for depression. To despair, ex apareo, means not despairing, but to despair means to actually believe there is no way out. I am trapped. That's what crushed means. There is no way out. This is hopeless. Aporeo is one of the words for hopelessness and depression. There is no way out. So my emotions, I'm struggling, Paul is saying. I am in a situation where I don't see any way out, and I'm perplexed and I'm confused, but in faith, I know there's a way out. I'm not crushed and I'm not depressed, believing that God has abandoned me and that it's hopeless the line you and I have to draw. So he goes on, verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. I've not been abandoned by God, struck down but not destroyed, annihilated. This is what it means to be depressed. So grief is not this. Grief is not this hopelessness. One writer says, by God's design, trouble needs to be painful. By God's design, trouble needs to be painful in order to refine believers for greater spiritual usefulness. Why does he give you sufferings that you can't see any way out on? That's that first word, afflicted. Why would he do that? Because he's trying to get us to the end of our self-sufficiency. Okay, That's why God does that. He puts you into situations where you see no way out. None. That's where he wants us. 
But he doesn't want us in that last word, despairing. Where you go from, I see no way out, to, well, there is no way out. God's abandoned me. So he puts us in painful situations, as this writer says, in order to refine believers for greater spiritual usefulness. He's trying to strip us of our self-sufficiency. Please write that under number four. The purpose of suffering that narrows you down and seems to block your path is to strip you of self-sufficiency. Driving you and I to trust God more. If you said to me, John, do you have various sufferings right now in your life that you see no way out? Yes. Closing my eyes and thinking through my life right now, there's one right there. There's a, there's a suffering right there. I don't see any way out. Number two, there's a suffering right there. I see no way out. Number three, there is a suffering there. I see no way out. These are horrible. Three, these three sufferings in my life right now are horrible. To a lesser extent, I see a fourth suffering that I don't see any way out. I grieve over these four things. There is no human solution for any of the four of them. I am definitely, in verse 8, afflicted. John, on those four sufferings that you think of right now in your mind, are you confused? Yeah. All my sermon preparation doesn't help me with this one, or that one, or that one, or the fourth one. I can't find answers in the Bible to these four. As far as these specific sufferings being listed in the Bible... So, John, are you depressed? Sometimes I gravitate in verse 8 into the crushed and despairing. There's times I've said this is hopeless, and then I think, oh, I just attack God. It's bad enough that I'm confused over my suffering, but now I have to attack God on top of it. I just accuse God of crushing me and abandoning me. So then I have to repent of that. Seems hopeless to me, the four trials, four sufferings right now. Been around a long time, those four. Time has tasked me. Time is an enemy concerning those four trials, a real enemy. The longer time goes with these four sufferings in my life that have not been reconciled, the more I am tempted by my own choice to be depressed. But why did God become the bad guy because I'm suffering? Why? The one who died for me becomes the bad guy? Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Because we're wicked. We turn the corner from cornering of sufferings and trials, and we turn the corner and start to say, God's the one that's at fault. I'd rather blame the world system, my old nature, and Satan than to blame God. Next in your note sheet, what's the point of this third mark of suffering then? Distress? Twofold. Number one, it's okay to be sad when suffering for Christ. That's number one. It's okay to be sad when suffering for Christ. And number two, let us not forget that most suffering is for the cause of Christ. Most suffering is for the cause of Christ. Let me think through those four trials, sufferings right now in my life. Let me concentrate right here. Number one, suffering. That's for the cause of Christ. Number two, suffering. 
That's for the cause of Christ. Number three, suffering is partially for the cause of Christ, but partially, no. And the fourth one is suffering that's my fault. But predominantly, number two, the sufferings for the cause of Christ. Let me give you an example. This is random. It's just off the top of my head. Christian gets fired from his or her job for coming in late all the time. Is that the distress that Peter's referring to? No. No. Uh-uh. Uh, it could distress me, and I could grieve over it. Uh, if I got fired for coming in late all the time, the grief would be there, and I should be grieving over that, which would lead to guilt for being a slack-off worker and having a horrible testimony, which should then lead to repentance and asking for God's mercy, what we learned this morning. Lord, it was my fault I got fired. I'm grieving over it. That's good. I feel guilty. That's good. And I ask your forgiveness, God, and I need to rectify this bad work ethic. I'm asking for mercy that you would give me another job so I can change my life and my behavior before unbelievers. That's how that works. Well, what if it went like this? I got fired from my job because I was coming in late all the time. That's what the boss told me. And my attitude is this. I hate that boss. The boss is an unbeliever. The boss is jumping on me for being late all the time when everyone else is as well. God, they're playing favorites on me. If you're going to fire me, you should fire the rest of them too. This is unfair. God, why have you allowed this? Why have you abandoned me? There's no hope. If this is the way it is working with the lost, I might as well not work at all. I give up. Do you see the difference between those two? Do you? Okay. Mark number four, back to 1 Peter 1 6. Our last mark. Distressed by various trials. Christian trials have great variety. We usually think of great variety as a good thing. But why would I ever think of great variety as when it comes to suffering as a good thing? Well, it is actually. This is probably the best news. The beginning of verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, that's great news. And then suffering is, has, has a variety to it. That's, that's actually good news. <laughs> uh, like I said, we don't think of great variety. You go to a restaurant, Italian restaurant, you have a whole page of pizzas you can order from. Which type of pizza do I want? What are the toppings I want? How well do I want it cooked? Great variety. This is fun being at a pizza restaurant. Yeah, well, how about suffering having various trials? Great variety. This is an interesting two words, various trials. Letter A under Mark 4, manifold, on the back side of your note sheet, manifold, various. That's how it says in the Greek. Poikilois perasmoi. 
manifold various. Wait a minute, I thought a manifold was a part of an engine on a car. Yeah, it is. But this is the old word for trials have variety. Manifold trials means trials that have variety. It means various. So on the blank line next to letter A, all types. God has an infinite library of various types of suffering. And in heaven, he takes one off the shelf and he targets it right for you. How do you like that? He chooses, unless the suffering is because of my sin, but that's not the context of verse 6. Okay, so let's eliminate the idea of various types of sin that we commit. That's not what's being talked about. Sin is our fault. Suffering is what God allows. Poikilois uh, means many-colored. Various means many colors to it. Many colors? Peter uses the exact same word for various there. Just describe God's grace. Look at 1 Peter 4. Verse 10, many colored, many shades. First Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving, diakonao, to be a slave. Uh, employ it in serving one another, we're to be slaves to one another in church. This is one of the major proofs that one is a believer. We have gifts, we use our gifts, and we serve each other. As good stewards of the, here it is, there it is, right there. Poikiloi, manifold grace of God. There are different types and colors of gifts, so shades of them. So it helps us a little now. If we think about shades of grace, various types of grace through service. That's the context of verse 10. This helps us back in 1 Peter 1.6. What does it mean, shades of suffering? Well, not everyone gets up and preaches two and a half hours every Sunday or two hours every Sunday as a full-time pastor teacher. So that's one shade of service. There are various types of service, uh, giving financially, uh, administration, helps, teaching that isn't pastor teacher. There are different ways that grace works out as we choose to serve. God has planted into us a conversion not based on personality or education. He has sovereignly given us various gifts that have various impacts and various opportunities to serve. Some are more in-depth than others. God determines the fruit. This is what suffering is. Various colors, under letter A, then write it down, means all types. In other words, all levels of suffering. So manifold various trials refers to all levels. It refers to various lengths of time under letter A. All levels. What do you mean by a level, John? Horrific down to annoyance and everything in between, all levels. Time designations, there's, you'll notice that some sufferings last for a few minutes. I told you about how I was persecuted at work last week because I was witnessing. And it ended. Next few days, back to normal. But when your spouse 
gets martyred for the faith, that's a level of suffering that doesn't end in a few minutes, right? Okay. All levels, all different degrees of time. Some here serve more in depth, longer than others. None of it's convenience, it's all enslavement. So if I'm serving out of convenience, I'm not serving with my gifts. But variety. The Bible says that you should be serving with your gifts, but doesn't tell us exactly how long or what the level of sacrifice will be. God determines that. We're just called to serve, 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 and leave the variety of God's grace working through our gifts to the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to be doing with service that leads to suffering. That's what happens when we serve the Lord and live for the Lord. We trust him that he's sovereign. This is where God is infinitely big. He determines what we're going to get. He's infinitely wise. He's studying you and he's studying me, and he determines what we can go through and endure and what might be a little too much, gives us a break on this trial. Then the bottom line here under letter A is the point of this is this. Can you trust God for all levels of suffering for all lengths of time? That he's the one controlling that. That's the issue. Can you do that? And how would you know when you're not trusting him anymore? Anxiety in your note sheet on the front side. Little letter D on mark number three. Distress versus anxiety and fear. Now you're not trusting God for your trials anymore. Or depression. Those are the, those are the tells. If the variety of suffering that God has allowed in your life levels and time, vertical and horizontal, length of time, linear, levels, degree of difficulty. If we stop trusting him for those two things, anxiety and fear or depression takes hold. That's when you know you're not trusting. God determines this. The steps of a righteous man are ordained from the, by the Lord. He determines the level and time, the difficulty a level and the time that a trial is in your life. When you come to the conclusion it's been too long, you're no longer trusting God. When you feel that it's too difficult, you're no longer trusting God. Are we clear on that? Letter B for tonight will conclude on the back side. Letter B, God has an appointment for all types of suffering and trials for the believer. He decides, okay? He's not asking your opinion on suffering. Why should he ask your opinion? You're not sovereign. So God has an appointment for all types of suffering and trials for the believer. And again, if the trial is related to our walks with God, then so to the suffering. And I put that in there because I don't want you to think, oh, I had a sinful thought. This is God's suffering for me today. No. God is not the author of sin. He doesn't tempt us. He's not the author of sin. That's our doing. So... God has an appointment for all types of suffering and trials for the believer. And again, if the trial is related to our walks with God, then so too is the suffering and the types of suffering. The example I gave about getting fired because I'm too late on the job always, that's not God's appointment of suffering for me. I caused that myself. God didn't want me to come in late always and get fired. That's not God's will for our lives to sin. And you better kind of count out of the equation 
the normal hardships of a fallen world because unbelievers experience difficulties as well. Right? Do they get sick like us? Do they have accidents like we do? Do they have bad times at work like we do? Do they have relationship problems like we do? So this is in regards to suffering for the faith. Suffering for walking with God. Suffering for witnessing and serving him. Taking a stand. Not laughing at the joke by an unbeliever. Not taking a promotion that will mean that you're permanently out of church fellowship. Not getting advanced for money. Thus suffering. So whatever hardship you have in your life, that an unbeliever could have as well is not the suffering for the faith, and that's not various trials is referring to. God has trouble afoot for us. This is necessary. He determines the level and the time frame when you walk with God as you fill in the blank and suffer for it, directly or indirectly, if you're suffering for the faith by serving, taking a stand, witnessing, refusing to do something, God is controlling that suffering. You say, well, does he control everything? Yes, he does. But he is not the source of our sin. It's not God's will that we sin. So we can't say, well, this is God's will that I sin and I'm facing trouble because of my sin. That's, no, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. MacArthur says, just as trouble is diverse, God's sufficient grace for believers is equally diverse. It's as simple as that. God is infinitely wise in heaven. He's looking at your life and he's determining out of loving kindness, Psalm 89, verse 33, he's determining out of loving kindness that everything in your life that he does, good and difficult, is all under the category of his loving kindness. And the godly believer accepts that, doesn't get depressed or fearful. Carnal believer gets depressed and fearful. Carnal believer feels that I am actually truly trapped and God's doing nothing, that God has abandoned me, makes horrific decisions based on panic, not faith, because God is unreliable. Suffering is meant to teach us that God is in control. One of those sermons, dear Lord, very easy to teach, Possible to live without your grace enablement. In a sense, a very easy sermon to listen to. Impossible to obey without your help. We are untrustworthy, Lord. You know that. You've taught us that in your word. We admit to you that we like to avoid suffering for the faith. And then when we avoid it, we convince ourselves, God, that the decision to avoid the suffering was a righteous decision, when really it was just an abandonment of your sovereignty and trusting that you're in control. Forgive us, Lord. This is why your precious word in the Psalms uses the word wait so many times, as I've taught many times before, W-A-I-T. When we're suffering and we don't know why and we're perplexed and we feel cornered, Lord, we're to wait. 
wait on the Lord, waiting for you to take charge continuously into the future, waiting for you to direct and give wisdom to make decision-making. Waiting is a good thing. We don't like waiting, especially in this culture. We give you a certain amount of time, God, and then, sorry, you failed. It's time for me to make a decision. What fools we are. Most suffering is beyond the point when we would want to stop waiting, Lord. This is the reality of it. Our carnal fleshliness has a line in the sand where we're not going to take this trial anymore, and if you don't answer by a certain amount of time, we're going to make decisions for ourselves. Thank you very much, God. You left me. You abandoned me. Therefore, I'm going to do this. Most suffering goes beyond that point. You see how we start to panic, and you allow the suffering to go into that time of panic because you're trying to break us down to trust you. Help us. To wait forever, if we must, under a heavy hand of suffering. And strengthen our faith that you're a God who is there, a God who is great. You're not a God who is small. Our lives and our difficulties are not too difficult for you. We worship and honor you concerning this. In Jesus' name, amen.